as we look at your word this morning that we will be uh, instructed with your truth. And uh, Lord, I pray you will help us to uh, understand the text that we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 20. And um, I pray that you will protect us from error because certainly Paul is strongly warning of the reality of error in this text. At the same time, I pray you will help us to hear the truth of what Paul is presenting. I pray that your spirit will transform our lives in light of the truth for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 20 this morning. We're actually going to look at the entire chapter. So we're going to work our way through the entire chapter this morning. And um, hopefully by the end of, of chapter 20, you'll at least have a grasp of what's going on in chapter 20. There's no way that we could uh, unpack the entire thing in one one week, but I think after what we've got in chapters 1 through 19, I think that we can understand what's going on here. At the same time, there's been a lot of error that's come out of chapter 20, if I may present that, especially in 17 through the end of the chapter, that I want to address. And uh, there's been a lot of misunderstanding and misemphasis. And I appreciate, Tom, your, your uh, confession this morning about reminding us again of the indicatives preceding the imperatives and the, uh, that the imperatives inform the indicatives because that becomes really crucial in this morning's text. And I think it has, uh, it has been misunderstood in a number of ways. You'll notice I had Tom read starting in verse 17 to the end of the chapter and not read verses 1 through 16. And we're, I'm not going to really spend a whole lot of time in 1 through 16 this morning. And not that 1 through 16 isn't important because it is important for a variety of reasons, but one of the most important reasons why 1 through 16 is important is because it gives background to a number of Paul's letters he wrote. Um, and what I mean by that is, for example, he probably wrote at least one, if not both, letters uh, to the Corinthians during chapter 21 through 17. He wrote the book of Romans, most likely, in chapter 21 through 17, 1 through uh, 16, I'm sorry, 1 through 16. Um, and for the most part, what you have is you have a description, uh, the color of the story as it was, as it were, in 1 through 16. Uh, I know that most people get caught up in the guy who died while he was preaching, uh, so we're going to address that real briefly just to fill in the, in the picture. Um, and what I'd like to say first, if you think I preach long, I want to say it again, if you think I preach long, and I do, thank you Rusty, you haven't read chapter 20, verses 7 through 16. Now, some people say, well, this is just a, an anomaly in Paul's ministry. It actually wasn't. I mean, the guy falling out of the window is. But the long messages was not. It, I, there's only one thing I really want to say about, uh, one thing more I want to say about 1 through 16. Um, it's an interesting storyline, especially 7 through 16, we're introduced to a group of believers who get together and Paul begins to minister to them. And he preaches, it seems like he preaches till midnight or so. And the implication isn't that he met, they started at, at 11.45 or 11.15 or 11.30. They're going all evening because it starts right after they eat. So they have dinner, and after they get done with dinner, Paul starts to minister the word to the congregation. And there's a lot of people in this meeting room. There's one guy, a young guy, who's sitting three stories up in a windowsill. And he's listening to the message. And he falls asleep. 
which, by the way, is not just because of the length of time. If you read Paul's writings, there's no question, even the Galatians mention it, how when he writes letters, they're so powerful, and yet when he gets up and starts preaching, it's like sleepy time. And he even talks about it in, 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 the, in uh, both those letters to Corinthians, he talks about how he came to them speaking with much fear and trembling. So, he, I don't get the impression that Paul is much of a public speaker. Be that as it may, even if he's not much of a public speaker, he's going for a long time. Most likely, it's probably going along for about five or six hours at this point in time. And the guy falls asleep. It mentions in the text that they had a lot of lamps lit, which if you have a lot of lamps lit, it's creating a lot of what? A lot of heat. They didn't exactly have LED light bulbs. So it's creating a lot of heat which complicates matters even more, especially if you're on the third floor window. Which means, what does heat do? It rises, so it's warm. And so, all that to be said, here's this young guy who falls, according to the Scriptures, deeply asleep in the window. And he falls. Whether he falls outwards out of the window or inwards into the floor is irrelevant. He falls. Some people argue he fell inwards. Some people argue he fell outwards. Uh, it doesn't matter. He fell. Three stories, and seemingly he's dead. At least everybody thought he was dead. He may have been dead, he may not have been dead, but whatever the case, Paul goes over to him. I think the King James says he lays on him, doesn't it? He fell on him, so he's on him. Um, the, any, uh, the ESV has the idea that he brings him to him. That's not a conflict in perspective. It's Paul's aggressively coming after him. And he declares that, he is, that his life is in him. Whether he was dead and he comes back to life or whether there is still life in him and he just seemed to be dead from the fall, again, is irrelevant to the discussion. The simple matter of fact is, he comes to again, whether he was dead or, or isn't dead, he comes to again. And later on, it, uh, the text says um, that... Um, they took the youth away, verse 12, uh, but this is not until daybreak. So this happens around midnight, and for whatever reason, the youth, the guy who fell out of the window is still there until daybreak. At daybreak, they take him away, and they're not, uh, the Bible says in verse 12, they take the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. So in other words, they were really comforted by the fact this guy's still alive. The interesting thing in the storyline that most people get all caught up in the storyline of the guy falling out of the window and the storyline of the guy being well again, right? And going away. But really, the storyline in this story of the guy falling out of the window is not about the guy falling out of the window. The storyline is more appropriately recognized that nobody else did. Why? He preached for probably five hours or more, and the people were responding, How? And by the way, there's information here about how they were responding. Because what happened after he fell out of the window? Verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking, in his arm, taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is still in him. Verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long time. How long? Till daybreak. Did you get that? Till daybreak. 
So, what does it tell us about the people? What? They were listening. I would add to that, Jim. They seemed to be listening with rapt attention. And the text says, not that Paul at this point in time, after he falls over, he doesn't say that, that, that Paul is, is, is giving a big monologue, does it? It says he was what? Conversing with them. The words with them mean what? There's reciprocity. There's communication back and forth. Most likely what's happening is Paul is speaking and they are interacting with him with perhaps what? Questions? Or maybe they're bringing other scriptures to bear and agreeing with him? Wrestling with the text together? You sense in the storyline that this is going on all night long, isn't it? And the people of the church are bored to tears. Is that the case? No! They're absolutely thrilled. They are caught up in the event, aren't they? As I call it, you're right, Ken, they're caught up in the black hole of fellowship. They have been sucked in, haven't they? They are totally immersed. It's like time doesn't exist. I can almost picture it. Here they are. They're going back and forth and back and forth. It's pitch black out. The only thing that's light is all the, all the lamps they've got lit, right? And all of a sudden, people start to notice something. The rooster's crowing. Peter hasn't denied Christ yet. The rooster's crowing. Or he already has a long time ago. But the rooster's crowing perhaps and it's, the light is starting to shine through the windows. Does that make sense? And people are like, oh man, we got to go to work. Right? We got to go to work. And so the meeting breaks up because they've got responsibilities. Off they go. Does that make sense? That's how enthralled they are with the Word of God. That's what's really important about this text. Paul's preaching the Word and people are there. People are focused. One guy loses it because of the heat probably up on the third floor. And leave it up to a young guy to go climb up to the third floor window, right? But then they still are there. They're just so caught up with the truth of Jesus Christ, their Redeemer, that they just want to talk more of Jesus. Now I know they didn't have watches on their wrists. They didn't have an iPhone or whatever, a Samsung that has a, the, the phone. Uh, you, open, you look at your phone and it automatically turns on and tells you the time and everything else. They didn't have clocks on the walls. You know, they had a sundial maybe. Well, it's not working. It's nighttime. But you know as well as I do, they still have an idea of time marching on. But you get a sense that in this early church that Paul has just stopped in to see they are just enthralled. Does that make sense? Remember last year I asked a question, I made a statement, that I, I, made, I asked a question, I made a question again, so I'm going to ask it again this week. Does that make sense? And the answer is, yeah. But does it really make sense? Does it really make sense? 
And I say that because, you know, we can sit down, we can watch a football game on TV for three plus hours, can't we? We could, what's that? Six plus, two games, right? Six plus hours. We can be there for six plus hours watching. We can watch a baseball game if it goes in, into extra innings. That's okay with us, right? And we can just keep going. And keep going. And keep going. We can go to the theater and we can watch, we can watch the entire, not trilogy, what do you call it when it's nine parts? A lot. You can watch all nine in the whole series and have a, a Star Wars marathon. Yeah, if you like Star Wars. People do it. Either at home or in theaters. Nine hours straight plus. Or nine, not nine hours, more than that. It's 18 hours plus. And they just go and go one movie after another, after another, after another, after another. It's like, and we don't think twice about it. Why? Because we're enthralled with it. Does that make sense? But you ever notice after about 45 minutes of Steve flapping his gums, what starts to happen? Okay, 30. Five minutes? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you notice what starts to happen? <laughs> but you notice what starts to happen? We start to say, yeah. Isn't he over yet? Now, sometimes it's the fault of the preacher, right? I've heard plenty of preachers in my lifetime who get up and start talking. They don't say much. You been there? And they take a lot of time to say it. And they start raising their voice and yelling because they really have nothing to say. I, I always say, that when I used to teach uh, homiletics or how to preach, I used to say, most pastors, the more they yell, the less they have to say. And they're trying to cover it up by yelling louder. That's almost always the case. A couple times it's not, but almost always. But my point is, sometimes it is the preacher because they don't have much to say. Either they didn't prepare well or they, or, they, or they just really don't believe it ultimately. But then, what about when, when it's really, really being proclaimed? I mean, we just went through the election season. It amazes me that people, will, I mean, it really did. It amazed me that people would get in a car, they would drive to a Trump rally, this is not a cut on Trump. I'm not making a political statement. But they'd drive to a Trump rally. They'd get there five hours early, six hours, eight hours, even ten hours early. Okay? And they'd get in, in the cold, and they would sit there. And they would wait. Expectantly wait. For hours and hours and hours. And then after watching hours and hours and hours, there'd be other people who'd get up to speak. And they would be with rapt attention, clinging on every word. I'm talking Christians. Clinging to every word. And cheering. And the next person would get up, same thing. The next person would get up, same thing. And finally, Trump would come to the platform. And there would be ten minutes of cheering before he even got his mouth open. And then he'd start to speak. And the same thing would happen. Hey, go for an hour and a half, two hours. And everybody in the audience is of rapt attention. Thousands of people. Why? Values. Right? It's the evidence of value. There's a football game or, or a, 
a baseball game or a politician or any of it. It's a statement of value. How we respond to it is a statement of value. We, 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 we display what we value. Right? I remember a couple times I went with Ken down to the Eagle Stadium. What's the Eagle Stadium called again? Lincoln Financial Center. I remember we'd go down a couple times. And the people around us, I, you and I would talk about it. I mean, people are just totally in on this. I mean, they get in fights sometimes, wouldn't they? It's insane. It's insane. It's, it's religious, isn't it? It's very religious. The Lincoln Center is, is like a, a temple for a lot of people, isn't it? And did we not hear when, when the uh, Capitol building got, had people in there broken into? Didn't, they talk in, didn't Pelosi talk about it as a temple? The temple of democracy, she called it. Interesting statement, isn't it? That's a really interesting, intriguing statement to me. Because I think people think that way. But yet when we come to church, it can be like, zone out, isn't it over yet? It's intriguing to me. That's all I really want to say about verses 1 through 16. They went all night. <laughs> and they broke up because they had responsibilities. It doesn't say because they had responsibilities, but you know that was the case. Be that in mind, we come to 17 to the end of the chapter. It's an intriguing section. And we're going to breeze through it. Thank you, Tom, for reading through it for me. It says, real quickly, it says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So the elders of the church come to him. And he's speaking to them. He's ministering to the elders. It is a challenge. It is a call to arms, if I may put it that way. To the elders. It starts out with a bunch of indicative statements. Paul gives a bunch of indicative statements, and then from there he moves into some par- imperatives, commands, and then he moves into some more indicative statements. In between are some warnings as well. And he gives some more indicative statements, and then he wraps it all up at the end. I just want to give you a, a perspective. One of the ways which I want to point out to you as we work our way through this text briefly is that it is misunderstood many times. First, this text has been looked at because Paul is ministering to who again? The elders from the church in Ephesus, right? And so first way this, church, this passage is misunderstood is that it's a, it's a passage not for you. It is only for the elders. When we think that way, we, we screw up the whole text. It's very important when we hear declarations to elders, whether it's here, recorded in the book of Luke, or Paul's various statements through his letters to the elders, whether it's to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. Let's use First and Second Timothy as the example. He writes to Timothy. And when he writes to Timothy, he makes some declarations in the beginning of the book. Statements of reality. Then we come to chapter 3 and we have warnings. Chapter 3, verses 1-9 through about the condition of the church in the end days. Nine verses worth. And then we come to 10 
And Paul changes it from a plural statement to a singular statement. But you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of. Correct? This is a, what, one of the pastoral epistles that is given to an elder Timothy. We have Titus given to a pastor, Titus. And we take these three books and we say, therefore the elders or pastors. And when we do that, we do a gross disservice to the text. Very important we get that. An elder is not a special class of person in the church. Do you realize that? You should. I've said that before. An elder is not a special class of person in the church. He is not another category. The argument in the New Testament is that elders in the church are people who are what? They are what? Mature believers. Now, there are a couple other things that narrow that down even more. Like they need to be a male. They need to be married to one woman. And there's a number of, of qualifications, right? You see the qualifications listed. However, in the broad sweep, we need to understand even though every single person cannot technically speaking be an elder of, now I'm using my words very carefully, of a church. Make sense so far? Even though not every person can be an elder of a church, for example, ladies, you're disqualified from being an elder. That is, in the position of an elder. But someone in a position of an elder in a church, technically speaking, functionally speaking, is to be an elder of a church because they are an elder. I mean, this isn't rocket science. They are to be an elder of a church because they are an elder. What does that mean? They're mature, a mature believer. When Paul sent Titus to go to the churches that he planted and to look for elders and appoint them in every city, he's not saying go there and find somebody who's got a seminary degree. Is he? Right? No, he's saying go and find people who are spiritually mature. Find people that are spiritually dialed into the truth of the Scriptures. Not perfect, but they understand the Scriptures. They can handle it skillfully. They're applying the Scriptures to their life. They're living, generally speaking, faithfully. They love Jesus. The evidence is clear. And they're ministering as a result. Basically, Titus is told to go identify them for the church and set them up in the position of an elder, because why? They're already an elder. Does that make sense so far? So if that is true, and I would argue it absolutely is, we, then you, who are not elders, cannot ignore, for example, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Can you? Now you wouldn't anyway as a, as, as a church because you want to make sure you hold your Elders accountable and elders to a standard. And at some level, that's right, isn't it? 
Of course it is. But the problem is, what happens? We end up holding elders to a what? A higher standard than we would never hold who to? Ourselves and others. And that's where we go in error. Now, except for a few exceptions, there are a few exceptions that are very office-specific. Does that make sense? There are a few things that are very, very office-specific, but the vast majority are not. You read First and Second Timothy and Titus, and you better pay attention. You better really pay attention because he's talking about and he's describing spiritual maturity. Does that make sense? He's describing what it is to be a mature Christian. Now, there's, again, there's a few office-specific things, but generally speaking, he's describing what a mature believer is. Why do I say this? Because I find too often most churches have no expectation. They have no expectation that people will be mature, that they will become elder-esque type of people. Most churches do not have an expectation that the average member of the church should be able to work their way through the Scriptures, minister the Scriptures, aid people with the Scriptures, confront people with the Scriptures, handle the Scriptures carefully, follow the Scriptures, and worship Christ with intimacy. Intimate biblical knowledge. That expectation doesn't exist today, for the most part. It just doesn't. And it is so bad that the average church today does not even anymore expect that the people of the church, we've talked about this before, that the people of the church, that the membership of the church will evangelize and carefully handle the Scriptures in presenting the Scriptures, the Gospel, to unbelievers. Quite to the contrary, more and more in the churches, and it's just illustrative, it is bring your unsaved friends and relatives and co-workers to church so that the pastor and elders can present the gospel so that the professional can do the work. Is that a biblical construct at all? It's not even close. As a matter of fact, I would argue that's not even primarily a role of a in-the-office functional elder. Is he to evangelize? Of course. Absolutely. As you're going, what? Make disciples, right? Talk about evangelism. And then teaching them, all those who get saved, teaching them all that I've commanded you, right? But no different from you. And every other church member. Every other person who claims to be a believer. No difference. No difference. Not, it's not a different level. No difference. So here we come to this statement. He's gathering the elders of the church and he's going to talk to them. It is important as people who are not in the position of an elder in a church to hear what he says. It's also important that the elder hears. That I as a pastor hear. But it's important that we hear this. Because he's not just speaking to the elders. He is speaking to the elders. But an elder is just supposed to be what? He's supposed to be the example, right? Yeah, he's supposed to be an example to the church. But an example for what? How everyone ought to be. How everyone ought to be seeking and to live and, and think and, and function. 
And in light of that, it's really interesting what he does here. When they come to him, he says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. So he tells his story, right? How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now please understand as we read through this, he's not bragging it's not his goal. It's going to become really clear. He's not bragging. And he's also not saying he never failed, by the way. Because he is human, right? Okay, so end of, end of 19, all the things that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. End of verse 21. So he did not shrink from what? Proclaiming truth. Right? Personally, and you could sum it up personally and corporately. You get the sense in reading it that for Paul, if he was corporately in the midst of believers, he's going to do what? He's going to proclaim Christ, right? He's going to proclaim the Word. If he's with someone privately... He's going to do what? He's going to proclaim the word, right? Did you get that sense? That's, that's, that's the idea. That's the other problem that I find a lot of, a lot of people do is they take this, this description that Paul gives and they try to make it legalistic. You've got to do this exactly as he said it and that is exactly as he said it and that is as exactly as he said it and that's not what the text is all about. We need to get the flavor of the text rather than falling into the legalistic thing that says you got to do this because he did this. you got to do that because he did that. What you need to hear is his, is his heartbeat, as it were. His heartbeat was to do what? To proclaim. He has an opportunity personally with somebody, he's going to proclaim. He has an opportunity corporately, he's going to what? Proclaim. No opportunity, he's going to do what? He's going to proclaim. <laughs> You get that sense? And, he's, and, and remember, what he's talking about here is both to unsaved and saved. Isn't he at this point? Because he did what? He went to places, he preached the gospel, some people were saved, he planted churches, and then he continued to minister and then he'd move on, right? Continuing on, before we get off of, of 21 though, I want you to notice, this is, this is really key, verse 21. Let's start again at verse 20 and work through 21. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. Because this establishes the understanding of the entire section. What is he teaching them? What is he talking about? It's two things. Repentance and in Christ. Remember, Tom always says, and rightfully so, faith has to what? Faith has to what? Have, have an object. Absolutely. Faith always has to have an object. So he says repentance toward God. So repentance also must have an object, right? Repentance toward God and faith in what? His Son, Jesus Christ. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? So he's spending his time doing two things. Now you've got to understand, when he talks about repentance toward God, that requires that he's telling them who God is, right? And who they are. 
Correct? He's saying, this is who God is, and this is who you are. Or to sum it up a different way, he's saying, this is who God is, and you're not. <laughs> right? And you're not. And by the way, this is who God is. He has a standard. And by the way, when we talk about you, you can't reach it. Never have, never will. Correct? So your only hope is faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That was his message before people were saved. Was that his same message after they were saved? Yes! That's the entirety of his message. Now, obviously it means he's always talking about who Jesus is, right? Knowing Paul, he's Trinitarian, although he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, he's talking about the Spirit as well, isn't he? Absolutely. I mean, you see it in all the books of, uh, that he's written, right? All the letters he wrote, it comes out over and over and over again. This is absolutely central with regard to this entire text. What has he been proclaiming every opportunity he has? If there's no opportunity, he does it anyway. That's at 2 Timothy 4, in season, out of season. Testifying both the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to stop on that for a second. He's talking to the elders, right? He's describing himself. So we already established that, that elders are not in a different class of Christians, right? Now I need to ask you, is Paul a different class of Christian? No. Now, he certainly has a different office, doesn't he? He's an, he's, he's an apostle. He has a different office, and there are definitely apostolic office-specific things he does, right? Like there are occasionally that he heals people. There's occasions that he, he has done other things as well that only apostles do in the Scriptures. But besides those office-specific things, who's Paul? He's a sinner saved by grace. He's a, he's a, he's a, a human being who needs what? Repentance toward God and to be reminded of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's no different. Right? He's no different. Crucially, we get this. So we've established elders no different, Paul no different. Verse 22. Just keep 21 in your mind because we're going to reference it again. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Notice what he says. What does he say next in the ESV? Those of you who have ESV. Verse 22. Now I am, or behold, I, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. What? Constrained by the Spirit. Interesting statement. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you think this is the first time that Paul has been constrained by the Spirit? The answer is obviously no. If you've been following along, what do we know about Paul? Could we just say it this way? He is constantly constrained by the Spirit? Yes. Yes. A great way to put it. Consciously aware of his guidance. And that's constrained, right? What is to be constrained by the Spirit? It means that the Spirit is what? 
controlling you. It's active you. It's active in you. He, I'm sorry, I said it. He's active in you. He's working how he works. Well, how does he work? How does he work in a believer? It, the scriptures tell us he does what? He encourages, he exhorts, he confronts, what? Empowers, he comforts, he corrects us, that's the, uh, admonishes us, he opens the scriptures to us. And by the way, in this day and age, I've got to make this declaration, he does not work outside of the scriptures. Very important. He does not. He does not say, oh, you don't like the Scriptures? Okay, I'll, I'll try this way instead. And I'll give you this new enlightenment instead. If we reject the Scriptures, the only other opportunity he has is to what? Hebrews chapter 12. To discipline. That's what he does. He disciplines, which is still what? Constraining. Isn't it? It absolutely is. So, when he says the Holy Spirit has constrained me to go to Jerusalem, this is nothing more than what's been going on all his life as a believer. That, even before he was a believer, was the Holy Spirit constraining him? Well, is God sovereign? Is God in control? Is God in control of all things? Really? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. He brought him... Could I, could I take it just one micro step before then? Even before that. You know what? He's the one who moved in the leaders in Jerusalem to give him the writings to go to Damascus. To do what? Persecute and kill Christians. Right? Absolutely. What did God say through, through Joseph to his brothers? You meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. He's always first cause, isn't he? That's the sovereignty of God at work. How much more once we're believers? Does that make sense? So he says in verse 22, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me, this is an office thing, he, is, he has special revelation that we don't have. Clearly, he wrote the Scriptures. He has special revelation. It's an office of apostle thing. Except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the Holy Spirit is revealed to him from here on out. Once he leaves where he's at right now, once he departs from the elders and heads to Jerusalem, what's going to happen from here on out? affliction, imprisonment, and eventually death. And so he hops in a boat and goes another way, just like Jonah, right? No. He, go, he does what? We find out he goes to Jerusalem. The Spirit's told him this bad stuff's going to happen. Difficulties, afflictions, imprisonments. Verse 24, but I do not, now I want you to hear this, I do not, this is not, this, again, this is not imperative stuff. This is indicative stuff. He's giving his testimony. He's talking about his life in Jesus. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Now, it is really comfortable to take what he just said in 22 through verse 24 and make sure and isolate that and build walls around that and say, that's Paul. Now, certainly part of it is Paul, right? Special revelation, that's a Pauline thing. But take away that, we know, don't we? Do we not know, even though we have not received a special revelation that you're going to get imprisoned or afflicted, do we not know that the life of a Christian, naturally or supernaturally speaking, is a life of affliction? Does the Scriptures tell us that? Jesus Himself said, "Those people hated Me, right? They're going to hate you too. Isn't that what He said? And we have that track record, do we not? We can't, we can't build walls around this statement. Can we? Because what Paul is talking about here, firstly, is what God already said, right? Now, he's getting some special revelations specifically of the actual skinning out of what Jesus said, right? Afflictions are going to come. And oftentimes, imprisonment. And we know church history-wise, that happened quite regularly. and still does in a lot of the world. But Paul had special understanding specific understanding from the Spirit, but it's nothing more than what he declared elsewhere, right? God declares elsewhere. Difficulties. Hard times. Rejections. Afflictions. Mockings. Ridiculing. Scourgings. Imprisonments. Death. It's there, isn't it? What's interesting about the text we just read, the section we just read, 22 through 24, is the beginning of 24. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the grace of God. Now, if we understand that Paul's not in a special class, and if we understand that, that the elders are not in a special class, but in reality, this is skinned out all the way down to everybody. This ought to shake us, shouldn't it? A little bit? Just a little bit? It should catch our attention a little bit, right? Paul's statement. Now, in order to understand 24 correctly, we've got to jump back to verse 21. Paul's mode of operation, or more importantly, his, his guiding principles, his foundational principles, is what? Everything is about what? God and Jesus Christ, isn't it? Spirit shows up later in the text. But the, the Trinitarian God, let's put it that way. Everything is focused for Paul upon who? God. Right? Isn't it? And that, does that just show up here in this text or does it show up elsewhere in Paul's writings? It's constant, isn't it? It's constant. One of my favorites, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which I've quoted you many times, we're not going to quote it today. It's very clear. It's there. Front and center. Except to say, he says, we focus not on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are what? Temporal or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hello? There it is. And lest we miss it, he's not writing to the elders in, in the church at Corinth. He's writing to who? All the believers in the church at Corinth. Isn't he in 2 Corinthians? 
So what's driving Paul is his knowing, his intimate knowing of his Redeemer. The love and mercy of God towards him. Does that make sense? As a result of that, Paul responds to the upcoming promised afflictions and imprisonments by saying what? I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself. You know what he just said? In effect, he just said all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Romans 11.36. Isn't that what he just said? My life, Paul says in verse 24, is not valuable in itself. That's what he said. That's what he said. Did you hear it? He said it's not precious to him. I do not account my life of what? Any value. Hear the words. Any value of itself. No, he said? Or to myself. No, he said? It itself, no value. The value of my life, Paul is in effect saying, is what? Is found in Christ. Yes! That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. And I know it's descriptive, but you know what Paul wants the reader to do? The elders first and then everyone to do? Is to say, is my life precious to me? Does my life have any value to me? Outside of the sole value of Christ? Because if it does, you know what Paul's saying? In effect, he's saying we're not elder-esque type of people. So the call is to what? Verse 21. To repent to our God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did Paul have a problem with this? Yep! <laughs> He's human. He wasn't perfectly mature. He looked forward to that day when he would be perfectly mature. Didn't he? But why did he look forward to that day? Because his eyes were where? To quote Hebrews chapter 12, fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Correct? Now, we look at this text now, all of a sudden it's starting to feel really uncomfortable. Isn't it? And it should. Because I suspect, as Paul said this to the elders, it was uncomfortable for him. How could you not read this and not be reminded of who we really are? Right? How could you not? How could you not read this and not say, I do need to repent. I do need to repent to my God and I, knew, I do need to be reminded of faith toward my Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the way he puts it, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, which implies that we're trying to come back to what? Remembering that He is Lord. The focal point of our faith. He is Lord. All authority, all power has been given to him. He's Lord. It's kingly terms, isn't it? 
He's on the throne. His kingdom is forever. And what, what, what does Paul want for himself? That he comes back to his Lord, isn't it? What does he want for the elders? To come back to his Lord, their Lord. What does he want for the church at Redeeming Grace, the people of the church at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church? Come back to the Lord. That's the theme here. Not legalism, you've got to do this, 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 and this. It's the indicative is who Jesus is, who God is, right? He moves on, because I'm just trying to prime the pump for us, 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, I love the fact that if you didn't, if you didn't get that, that it's all kingdom stuff, he actually uses the term, right? Procl about proclaiming the kingdom, will uh, that none of you will see my face again. He's saying, this is it. This is the last time we're together. On earth. The last time. And so I've got some final words for you, is what he's saying to them. Therefore, that's the idea. Verse 26. So I have some final words for you. Therefore, I testify to you this day, and first thing he does, he's still on him, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Stop there. Now, I, I want to pause on this. I, I can't really do it justice because I've got so much else to cover, but I want to pause on it because I hear people trying to guilt people into evangelizing by using this type of verse and a couple others like it. And that's not the intent at all. To manipulate people to evangelize. Paul declares, I testify this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Period. That is a, a, an imperative or an indicative? It's what? It's indicative. It's not a command to them to do something. It's an indicative about himself. And what he's, all he's saying, if I may say this, what he is declaring is, on one level, is there consequences for for not declaring? Well, yeah, there is, right? If you don't declare the truth, right? If you don't declare the gospel, let me just ask you real quick, is that sinful or isn't it? If you're not declaring the gospel, is it sinful? Of course it is! Okay? So, the idea of blood, I don't, I don't believe for a second that what he's saying is that for all eternity, these people's blood is on you. I think he's more talking, because ultimately we know that is God sovereign or isn't he? For who's going to be saved? Yes. But do you have responsibility and do I have responsibility to proclaim? Yes, it's commanded. We have responsibilities to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do not, we sin, right? Could I just ask you a quick question? If you or I do not proclaim the gospel, did God get thwarted? Did his plan get thwarted? No. What did Jesus say in John 10? All that the Father give, has given me, I what? I lose none. Right? He loses none. That's our confidence, right? But at the same time, we recognize at the same time that God uses means. Does He not? And the means He has chosen to use is the proclamation of the good news by people to other people for people to be saved.
Could I just ask you a quick question? However, did Paul evangelize out of guilt? Did he, did he evangelize because, he, because, because he, he was overwhelmed with guilt if he didn't? The love of Christ controls him. We've said it before, haven't we? And because he knows the fear of the Lord, he persuades men, right? There's no guilt in there, is there? No guilt. He persuades men because he knows the fear of the Lord and, because, and, and, and he proclaims the truth because the love of God controls him. If we want to understand this correctly, why is Paul proclaiming the gospel? He's proclaiming the gospel because he's consumed with the God of the gospel. Right? He is captivated with the God of the gospel. And why is he captivated with the God of the gospel? Yes! Because the God of the gospel captivated and remains captivating him, right? He who began the good work in you will what? Continue to perfect you to the day of Jesus Christ. The God who captivated him originally caused him to be captivated by the God who captivated him. And that God continues to captivate him. Therefore, he continues to be captivated by God. That makes sense? He's not driven by guilt. Yet at the same time, there is a consequence. Discipline comes, right? You are held accountable for disobedience. Are you not in the Scriptures? We absolutely are. That's what he's talking about here. But he's describing himself as being someone who has faithfully what? Proclaimed the Gospel. Could I just say something real quickly at, at risk of being a heretic here? I suspect even Paul had to repent of that. I suspect Paul didn't perfectly present the gospel. Always. Well, guilt that brought him to repentance. Yes. But, guilt, but the guilt didn't control him. It didn't drive him. The love drove him. The being captivated with Jesus drove him. But here's the interesting thing about repentance. Repentance does what with regard to our sin? What does God do when we repent of our sin? He removes it as far as the east is from the west, right? And, and the idea is it's no longer on our account, is it? Is it? It's erased from the ledger. So if I borrow $10,000 from Tom, good luck, right? He sold everything and he even sent his wife into slavery in order to get it. <clears throat> he sold her into slavery to some wandering bands. <laughs> and he gives me the $10,000. And he writes it down in his ledger. And later on I come back to him and I say, Tom, I, I need to repent. I can never pay you back. And Tom forgives me. You know that act of forgiveness is? Erasing it out of the ledger. Isn't it? And if it's erased out of the ledger, it never happened. Do you realize that? It can't be held against me anymore. It doesn't exist. It's out of the ledger. Does that make sense? When we understand that Paul's a, a believer, yes. He's an apostle, yes. But we also understand that Paul's a human, isn't he? 
as a human, he fails, right? And he sins. But when he repents, it's as if it didn't even exist. It's stunning. That's how deep and abiding God's forgiveness is. Isn't it? It's crazy. And then on top of that, when God views us, he sees not us and our righteousness, but he sees what? Christ's righteousness. It's, 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 it's mind-blowing. So much so that he can say, I testify to this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, generally speaking, he didn't. But just knowing humanity and how being a human is, repentance was necessary. It's from there he moves into an imperative. We've got this description. And he moves into imperative. Pay careful attention to yourself and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So now we have an imperative. After all this, we have the imperative. And he's speaking to elders and he says to the elders to do what? Pay careful attention to those who have been entrusted to you. That's the responsibility of an elder. Is that an office issue only? This is a really important question. Is that an office of elder issue only to pay close attention to those who are believers? No. Is it a responsibility of the office? Yes. Is it only the responsibility of the office? No. Let me give some examples. Paul elsewhere says to Timothy, teach faithful men who will what? Teach others also. Right? And the implication, teach the Word of God. Timothy, teach faithful men who will then in like turn teach others also the Word of God. Correct? So, Timothy is to teach others. Who's the others? It says faithful ones. It doesn't say elders. It says teach faithful ones. Identify some some, uh, faithful ones. Teach them. And then they are to what? Implication, teach. But who do you think the others are? If he's teaching faithful men, who are the others? Probably not so faithful, right? They're struggling. Maybe young believers, right? Does that make sense? So what is Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, pay careful attention to yourself. Let me read it again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. I'm, I'm focusing on the all the flock part. He tells Timothy, I'm sorry, he tells the elders in, in Ephesus, that are from Ephesus, pay attention to the, elder, to the flock, right? But elsewhere he's saying to the flock, do what? Pay careful attention to the, to the flock, right? Who's to pay close attention to the flock? Everyone. Everyone is. And too often the idea in the church is it's the elder's responsibility, it's not mine. Really? Who's the only one in the list that I just quoted to Timothy from Paul, who's the only one who's not paying close attention to the flock? The unfaithful ones. Right? They're the only ones that are not paying attention to the flock and are not told to pay attention to the flock. Why? Because they're not paying attention. <laughs> how, could they tell, how could they help someone pay attention when they're not paying attention? Does that make sense? 
How is it possible? But he tells Timothy, pay attention to the flock by teaching faithful ones, and then they should pay attention to the flock by teaching others. Correct? So the only people who, who are not commanded to pay attention to the flock are people who need to do what? To pay attention. <laughs> and, and, and in their paying attention, they're going to what? They're going to repent to God and have faith in their Lord Jesus Christ, which makes them a faithful one who will then do what? Pay attention to the flock. Does that make sense? So I went to the second one first. Now let's jump back to the first part. He says to this, these elders, pay careful attention to... It's the very first thing he says. Pay very careful attention to yourself. It's very interesting what he says. Pay careful attention to yourself. He didn't just say pay attention, did he? He didn't say just make sure you have your devotions every day, did he? He didn't say, hey elders, make sure that you schedule a 30-minute devotional time where you read the Bible and pray every day. Did he? Is that implied in the text? It is not implied in the text. As a matter of fact, not just in this text, it's not implied in any text. The point of the text is Paul tells these elders, elders from Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourself. And the perspective that we need to understand is ongoing attention. That's what it means. Yes, but it starts out with, 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 with them. I need to pay attention to, careful attention to me. Right? But yes, other elders as well. Yeah, but, but the idea primarily is pay close attention because other elders are also part of the flock. Right? They're still part of the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's speaking to a group. Pay close attention to yourselves. That means Elder Steve... Pay close attention to yourself. And the idea is ongoing. As you're going, be aware. Be on guard. Be focused. Why? Because there's going to be temptations everywhere to what? To be unfaithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be regular and ongoing opportunities to forget, to repent to your God. Right? There's going to be regular and ongoing opportunities to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Correct? And by the way, it's always. Because the Scriptures tell us we need to preach the gospel to who? Firstly, ourselves. That's all the time because I'm always with me. Correct? Always with me. Well, sometimes I'm not, maybe, but you know. That's a whole other issue. The point is, he's, he's saying in an ongoing way, you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, where should your focus be? This is the idea. Where should your focus be? On God, yes. On Christ, yes. And on myself. Myself in light of God, uh, in light of the Godhead, and in light of the Scriptures. Right? The idea is, from the time I get in the morning to the time I go to bed at night, where I should be is what? Focused on God and myself. In light of God. As exposed to what God has said. So I go to work. 
What has God said about what's going on? I'm in, I'm, I'm in relaxation time. What has God said about the relaxation time? I'm, I'm eating a meal. What has God said about eating a meal? And who is God in light of that meal? I'm hanging out with friends. What has God said about friends? And what, what does God have to do with my friends? And how is God to be interacting with, with my friends? And on, on, on. Based upon my worship of God. See, it's not a legalistic, it's not a legalistic thing that he's saying here. He's not saying, listen, pay careful attention to yourself. I command you. Is it a command? Yes. But it's not, I command you to pay close attention to yourself, so you better pay close attention to yourself. It's based upon all the indicatives that have come for 19 chapters. And the 19 chapters are what? About who? It's about God. And it's all flowing out of Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke, isn't it? Because the same author comes right after that. Who Jesus is. So ultimately, he says, pay close attention to yourself. It is where is your heart, isn't it? What causes your heart to beat? What's your reason for getting up in the morning? What's your reason for going to work? What's your reason to make money? What's your reason to have friends? What's your reason to eat? What's your reason to, to, um, to recreate? What's your reason to relax? What's your reason for anything? What's your reason for breathing? Does God say anything about breathing? It's in Jesus that we what? Leave and what? Leave and move and have our breathing. How do I live and move and have my being if I'm not what? Breathing. I don't live, right? If I'm not breathing as a human, I'm not living, right? The, 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 I mean, it's clear. Even our breathing is for the glory of God, isn't it? Whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Does that include breathing? Yes! So when he says pay careful attention to yourselves, it's not just that you're doing stuff. And that's what we've done to this text. Pay close attention to yourself that you're doing the stuff that God tells you to do. Really? Do I need to remind you of the Lord's, of, of, I'm sorry, not the Lord's prayer, but, but um, uh, Christ's high priestly prayer? When he prays for those who are going to be saved through the, through the uh, disciples' ministry, he prays that they will obey the commands of God. That's what he prays, right? No. He prays that they will know you and that they'll know the Son who you sent. And I would argue when he says pay close attention or careful attention to yourselves, it is not about primarily that you do what's commanded. It isn't. I'm not trying to minimize the commands. It's not primarily about do what is commanded. Pay careful attention to yourself that you know the Father and you know the Son He sent. That's really it. Pay careful attention that you really know who Jesus is. It's inexcusable that after being saved for 15 years, 10 years, even 5 years, even a year, that the best you could do is give a Sunday school answer who Jesus is. He gave us so much information about Himself, didn't He? He, he introduced us with the most amazing introduction possibly could be given. And then He gave us His Spirit, right? To open our eyes to see the truth of all that stuff. Pay careful attention. 
so that you repent to a God that you know. <laughs> and so that you have faith in the, in, in the Jesus that you know. Does that make sense? That's yeah, not just for the elders. That's for all believers. Pay careful attention to yourself. What we tend to do is after church, we tend to be like, boop. And I say we, I'm folding me into it. Church is over. What's for lunch? And there's no Jesus even on the horizon. Is there? Is that how it happens? We go home, we turn on the football game, and where's Jesus? Unless you're watching Notre Dame. <laughs> Those of you get that, you get it. <clears throat> Those of you don't, there's a mural of Jesus at the one end zone and the Catholics call him Touchdown Jesus. Anyway, <laughs> um, we watch football and where's Jesus? I say it because it's football season. Again, just illustratively, we go to work, where's Jesus? Where is he? You know, suddenly that, that Revelation 3 statement, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and you know my perspective that's talking about the church, talking to believers, not unbelievers. Suddenly it starts to get a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? It starts getting real uncomfortable. We've got to move on. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, obviously... That, technically speaking, is referring specifically to elders, the office. But has not, again, the Scriptures told us all to oversee one another? Hasn't it? Absolutely it has. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I love the way he wraps up that verse. To care for the church of God, and your focus and your perspective must be, what? The very end of the verse that he obtained that church at the highest cost, didn't he? At the highest cost. Now, if I love Jesus, and I understand that he obtained the church with his highest cost, including me. Do you think that changes my perspective on the church? And those of the church? Absolutely it does. So Paul is, again, wrapping us all the way around to verse 21 again. A focus on not the law, not what I must do, but focus on Jesus. Moves on. I know, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Whoa. Very focused on the elders at this point, right? Very focused? Absolutely. But not completely. He's, he's speaking to the elders and he's warning them. He already told them to uh, be careful and over, oversee and watch out for, carefully watch out for yourselves and the, um, the flock. But then he says, I know after my departure again, fierce wolves. And what are fierce wolves? They're animals that come in to do what? To kill and tear and destroy. Right? Viciously. They're gonna, they will come in among you. I want you to know, it didn't say they may. Did it? Paul did not say they may. He said they will. They will come in among you. 
not sparing the flock. The flock is going to be decimated. And in verse 30 again, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. What did he just say? Some of those wolves are going to what? They're going to come, actually, not just in your midst, they're going to come from within. The, yeah, you're right. Not the midst of the church, but the midst of the actual functional elders, right? Some of the elders are going to be discovered as being wolves. Is there any examples of that in the Scriptures? Uh-huh. Hidden reefs, Jude. And, and one of the classic specifics is Diotrephes in 1 John. He was an elder of the church. He was, he was a wolf. We can, have, we can look at it as an example, although I don't think he was actually a functional elder, but he was certainly elder-esque, right? Seemingly. Demas. Right? And we could list a number of others. Shocking. Uh, there was absolutely some uh, that left him in Asia. And those who have forsaken him in 2 Timothy 4. Absolutely. The whole church in Asia left him. Why would they leave? He didn't say the whole church in Asia left me except for the functional elders or those in the, that, were, that were in the office of an elder. He said they all left, didn't he? He said it can actually come from among the elders, the, the positional elders. Now, we don't have that problem today at all in, in the church at large, do we? Right? I mean, man, aren't we blessed this, in this age that all the elders in all the churches are really solid? Isn't that a blessing? Wow. I'm so thankful we live in this age that all the elders are just preaching the gospel and pointing people to Jesus. Amen? It's a mess out there. It's an abs... Don't fall out of the window. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's a mess, isn't it? You don't believe it? Then take a couple weeks away from here and go check out some other churches. Now, I'm not banging our own drum here, but I, I am really trying hard to stay faithful to the text. And I'm really trying hard to make sure that we're focused on Jesus. Aren't, aren't I? I hope. But I know that's not the case. It's scary what's out there. Russ, I know you've been in the last couple of years to a number of other churches. It's pretty scary, isn't it? It's really scary, friends. It's a mess. And the warning is clear. That should not surprise us. And it even comes from within the elders. It doesn't only come from within the elders. It can come from the flock. They can be hidden reefs there too. Verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw, to draw away the disciples after them. Did you just hear what he said? Do you sense at the end of verse 30 that Paul makes it very clear it's purposeful? Their purpose is to draw you away to them. Therefore, what? Be alert. Evaluate. Constantly consider. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, day, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. His whole being is into it. I, we're out of time. And now I commend you to the grace, or to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. What did he just say? I turn you over to God and his grace. Is that what you hear? 
I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel, but you, yourself, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me in all things. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Who's the weak here? The weak are those spiritually weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on, uh, on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful. Notice, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and the idea is that they would not hear the amazing truth from him again. That was the grieving. Not over the fact that he's just leaving, right? And they wouldn't see him again. It's because they valued the word and they accompanied him to the ship. The call of the text, we are over time dramatically, the call of the text, friends, is to be after knowing Jesus. Yeah, exactly. I'm ahead of time by Paul Sanders, but I know that we have a hard, hard break in a little bit. The call of the text is to be hot after Jesus. Be careful after it today. Well, it's still today, right? Hebrews. Be after Jesus. Be after knowing Jesus. Be after knowing God. Be after worshiping him fervently and being brought to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And you know what's going to happen? If that's you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to find yourself doing exactly what he describes here and exactly what he commands here. You will find yourself doing what? Preaching God's word and being after it carefully over, over yourselves and the flock. Having big eyes and big ears for what? The wolves. And we're not going to be gracious to say, well, no, they're nice people. They're wrong in a couple areas. No, they're what? Wolves. That's what happens when we're hot after Jesus. Because when we're hot after Jesus, the Spirit opens our eyes to what? To see all this. Doesn't he? So if we can bring anything out of this at all, it's, that's what we need to be praying for, isn't it? God, draw me to repentance, verse 21. Draw me to understand who you are in greater and greater ways. Open my eyes to see what faith really is. Give me the faith to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help me to know him as my Lord. Help me to understand him as one who has all authority and all power. Draw me close. And I will. That's exactly what David does in Psalm 51, doesn't he? When he calls out to God to, repent, to repentance. And he says, what? Please forgive me. And then I, what? Will teach transgressors their way. That's what's going to happen. I will teach transgressors their way. Why? Because I'm walking close to him. That's what we need. That's where we need to cry and seek him while he may be found. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us as we go from here that we will be people that aren't so much saying, well, Paul said this, so I've got to do this. And Paul said that, so I've got to do that. And Paul said this other thing, so I've got to do that. But Lord, help us instead to say, why am I not that? Why is my heart not after that? And realize by your Spirit the answer is because I have not been a repentant one focused on Jesus. And draw us to repentance and draw us to worship and to enjoy and glorify you forever. In your name I pray. Amen.